Chapter 10 of A Bullet for Cinderella by John D. MacDonald. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. I realized they were still talking, but I was no longer listening to what they said. Then I realized that Ruth had spoken to me. I beg your pardon? I said I have to be running along. Wait a minute, please. Can we talk for a minute? You too, Mr. Perry. I saw that she was holding her shoulders as if she were chilled. The sun had gone under again, and a raw April wind was blowing. We could sit in my car a minute. I want to make a guess as to what George was doing with the money. They looked at me oddly. Perry shrugged and said, Sure. We crossed the street and got into my car, Ruth in the middle. It's just a guess. You know that Rose Fulton has never been satisfied with her husband's disappearance. Prine investigated, and he's satisfied. George was out of town when Eloise ran off with Fulton. A neighbor saw Eloise carry a bag out to the car. Now suppose that Eloise wasn't running away permanently. Imagine that she was just going to stay the night with Fulton. She didn't want to stay at the house in case George should come home, and there were the neighbors to consider. She wouldn't want to go to a motel or a hotel in the area. She was too well known. So she planned to go up to the lake with Fulton. She took just the things she'd need for overnight. Was it the time of year when there wouldn't be people up at the lake? It was this time of year, Ruth said. Now suppose George came home and found she wasn't home. He started hunting for her and went to the lake. Or imagine that for some reason, driving back from his trip out of town, he stopped at the lake and found them there together. What would he have done? I see where this is headed, Ruth said. It gives me a strange feeling. George loved Eloise and trusted her. I guess he was the only one who couldn't see what she was. If George walked in on the two of them, I think he would have gone temporarily insane. I think he would have killed them. He used to be a powerful man, Tal. So he killed them up there at the lake. He got rid of the bodies. He could have wired weights to the bodies and sunk them in the lake, but I'm more inclined to think he buried them. Maybe he buried them on his own land there. He was lucky in that she had been seen at the inn with Fulton, and she was seen leaving with Fulton. He had no way to know that it would work out so well. He killed them in anger and buried the bodies in panic. For a long time he was safe. He tried to go on as though nothing had happened. He played the part of the abandoned husband. And then somebody found the bodies. They didn't report it to the police. They went to George. Perry said eagerly, and put the bite on him. They demanded money and kept demanding money. He had to start selling things. When nearly everything was gone, he killed himself. He couldn't face exposure and trial and conviction. So we have to look for somebody who has gotten rich all of a sudden. Or somebody smart enough to just put it away and not attract attention by spending it, I said. He seemed so strange sometimes, Ruth said softly. He said queer things I didn't understand. He was like one of those bad movies where people laugh at the wrong places. It would be quite a thing to have on your mind. Perry said. The more I think about it, the more logical it seems, Mr. Howard. I think you've hit it right on the head. The next step is to prove it, and that means looking for the bodies. I, I'd like to hear what Mrs. Fulton has to say, though. She's been annoying Prine by sending people here. 
I'd like to know why she's so convinced that she's willing to spend money. We could phone her, I said, if you could get her address. He got out of the car. I think I can get it. I'll be back in a minute. We placed the call from Perry's office. Perry talked to her from the inner office. Ruth and I listened on the extension, her ear close to mine. The woman had a harsh voice. How do you come into this? I don't, really. Mr. George Warden committed suicide last night. It gives us a lead to what might have happened to your husband. He was killed, and he was killed down there. Maybe that woman did it. I don't know. Now I hear that man Grassman is missing. I talked to him before he went down there. What are you people going to wake up down there? What kind of a place is that, anyhow? What makes you think your husband is dead? Henry was no damn good. He'd chase anything in a skirt. I knew it. That was the way he was. He'd always come crawling back. He even liked crawling, I think. This business with that warden woman was more of the same. It wouldn't last any two years. He had fourteen hundred dollars in his personal checking account. That's all tied up. He's never drawn on it. He owed payments on the car. The finance company has never been able to find the car. We've got two kids in high school. I'll say this for him. He loved the kids. He couldn't go two years without seeing them, not Henry. Personally, believe me, I'm convinced I'll never see him again, and I don't care. But he had a couple of big insurance policies. I insisted on that to protect me and the kids. What protection have I got? The companies won't pay off. It has to be six years from the time he dropped off the face of the earth. Four more years I have to get along. What about college for the kids? I tell you, you people better wake up down there and find out what happened to Henry. There was more, but she merely repeated herself. The conversation ended. I hung up and looked at Ruth. Her smile was wan, and she shivered a little. That was pretty convincing, Tal, she said. Very. Perry came into the outer office. He looked thoughtful. Suppose I was the blackmailer. I find the bodies. I come across them by accident. Or maybe I was smart enough to look for them. Okay, what do I do? I make damn well certain that nobody else finds them and spoils the game. I want to do a better job of hiding them than George did. But I don't want to completely dispose of the bodies. I want them where they can be used. I want them where they can be a threat. I want them where they can be dug up. Ruth said, That man Grassman. We saw him out at the lake, Tal and I did. And now he's disappeared. That could mean that he found the bodies. And found the blackmailer, too, Perry said. I found myself remembering the odd conversation with George, when he had said that he couldn't give me a job, and had offered me a gun out of stock. He had known that I had come from Fitz. He had thought that I was a friend of Fitz, cutting myself in on the take. It was obvious that Fitz was the blackmailer. I remembered the expensive look of the suit he was wearing when I had seen him at the inn. He had come to Hilston with the idea of finding the money Timmy had hidden. He had stayed at the cabin out on the lake. He made a point of telling me that the money wasn't hidden out at the lake. He had looked there and found something profitable and horrible. But what was most convincing was Fitz telling me that he was certain Eloise hadn't taken the money with her. He must have appreciated his own joke. Eloise had never meant to leave permanently. 
She would have been a fool to leave as long as there was a chance of Timmy coming back. She knew about the money. Yet Timmy had been shrewd enough not to trust her with the information about the hiding place. I thought of that first conversation that must have taken place between Fitz and George after Fitz found the bodies. What should we do? Ruth asked. Should we talk to Captain Marion? At four-thirty that gray Wednesday I stood on the lake shore with Ruth and Alan Perry, Sergeant Brubaker, and Lieutenant Prine. We were in front of the place that had belonged to George Warden before he had sold it. The narrow dock had been hauled out under the shore for the winter and hadn't been replaced. The wind had died and the lake was like a gray steel plate. Voices had an odd resonance in the stillness. Captain Marion came out of the cabin with a husky young patrolman. The patrolman had changed to swimming trunks. He wore an aqualung, with a face mask shoved up onto his forehead. He walked gingerly on the rough path in his bare feet. He looked serious, self-important, and chilled. Captain Marion said, Try to stay on this line right here. The water looks kind of murky. How's the light? The patrolman clicked the watertight flashlight on. It looks bright enough. Prine said in a low voice, so Captain Marion couldn't overhear, This is nonsense. No one answered him. Brubaker moved away from us. I glanced down at Ruth's face. Her lips were compressed. She watched the patrolman wade out into the water. It shelved off abruptly. He thrashed and caught his balance, the water up to his chest. He adjusted the face mask, bit down on the mouthpiece. He glanced toward us, then moved forward and was gone, leaving a swirl of turbulence on the surface. The ripples spread out, died away. Prine lit a cigarette, threw the match aside with a quick, impatient gesture. He had looked tall when I had seen him behind his desk. Standing beside me, he was not tall at all. His trunk was very long, but his legs were short and heavy. The long minutes passed. We made idle talk, but we kept our voices low. The pines on far hills looked black. The man came abruptly to the surface about forty feet offshore. He swam to the shore and waded out of the water, dripping. He pushed the face mask up onto his forehead. He was shivering. Man, it's cold down there, he said. We moved toward him. Well, Marion demanded. Here, sir, he handed Marion something. We looked at it as it lay on Marion's hand. It was the dash lighter out of an automobile, corroded and stained. I came right up from where it is. It's in about fifty feet of water, half on its side. Gray Studebaker, Illinois plates. The number is CT5851. Empty. Rock bottom. It's on a pretty steep slope. I think it can be hauled out all right. That number checks out, Prine said in a reluctant voice. Damn it. How do you figure a thing like that? Steve, Marion said, I guess maybe we goofed on this one. I guess maybe that Rose Fulton was right. Ruth had gone back to town with Perry in his car. She had seemed subdued, thoughtful. As Perry had credited me with making the guess that led to the discovery of the car, I was in Marion's good graces. I had not told them the second installment of the guess, no longer a guess, actually, that Fitzmartin was the blackmailer. The tow truck had arrived. It stood heading away from the water, brakes locked and wheels blocked. The taut cable stretched down into the water. 
At dusk, they had turned on the big spotlights on the tow truck. About twenty people watched from a place just down the lake shore. Captain Marion had herded them down there out of the way. More men had come out from town. They had been searching the area, prodding into the soft earth with long steel rods. The tired patrolman surfaced again and came to shore. "'It ought to do it this time,' he said. "'I got the hook around the rear axle and fastened back on the cable.' He stood in the light. He had scratched his arm on a rock. There was a sheen of water-diluted blood on his forearm. "'Try her again,' Marion called. The winch began to whine again. The cable tightened visibly. I watched the drum. The cable began to come in a few feet at a time. The progress was uneven. At last, like some surfacing sea monster, the gray back of the car emerged from the water. The car was resting on its wheels. It came backward out of the water, streaming. Bright metal showed where it had been dragged against rocks. The big truck moved forward until the car was entirely on dry land. Water ran out of the car, runneling back into the lake. There was a smell of dampness and weed. "'Get yourself dried off, Ben,' Marion said quietly. "'George, open up that back end with a pry bar.' The cold, weary, underwater swimmer went up to the cabin. A stocky man in uniform opened the trunk expertly. The county police, who had arrived, moved closer. I could hear the spectators talking excitedly to each other. The floodlights illuminated the interior of the trunk compartment brightly. There was drenched luggage in there sodden clothing. Water was still running out of the trunk. Marion said, Well, that's one place they ain't. Didn't expect them to be. Tight fit for two of them. But you can see how it was. Those shirts and socks, that stuff wouldn't jump out of the suitcase. He found them. After he killed them, he just dumped their stuff in the back end, loose-like. Then he aimed the car at the slope and started it up. It would be night, and he wouldn't have the car lights on, because that would attract attention. She got going pretty good. He knew it was deep off here. Hitting the water probably slowed it a lot. But once on the bottom, it would keep right on going down the underwater slope until it wedged in those rocks where Ben found it. I could see a woman's red plastic purse in the back end. The red had stayed bright. It looked new enough to have been carried by Eloise yesterday. Captain Marion reached in and took it out. He unsnapped it and poured the water out of it. A corroded lipstick fell to the ground. Marion grunted as he bent over and picked it up. There was a wallet in the purse. He took it out and shook the water off it and opened it. He studied the soaked cards. Mrs. Warden's all right. Al, can you tow the car off into town all right? Sure, Captain. Well, when you get there, spread all this stuff out in the back end of the garage where it'll get a chance to dry off. In ten minutes the car had been lashed securely and towed off. I heard the tow truck motor labor as it went up the hill toward the road. Captain, Ryan said, shall I have the men keep looking? It's getting too dark to do much good. They haven't had any luck. Might as well save it until morning. Tom, can you detail some of your boys to help out in the morning? I can send a couple around. The spectators had gone, most of them. 
A wiry little man came over to where we stood. The swimmer, back in uniform, had come down from the cabin. I could smell a strong reek of liquor on his breath. Somebody had evidently found a cold preventative for him. Prine said to the elderly little man, I told you people to stay back there. Don't you bark and show your teeth at me, boy. I want to talk to you fellas. Maybe you might learn something. Get off the— Hold it, Steve, Captain Marion said in a mild voice. What's your name? Finister. Bert Finister. Looking for bodies, somebody said. That's what you're doing. You can listen to me. I live off back there other side of the road. I do chores around here. Most of the camps. Everybody knows me. Carpentry work. Plumbing. Masonry. Put the docks in. Take them out in the fall. I know these camps. So you know the camps. If you were hunting for bodies, Finister, where would you look? I'm getting to that. I know the camps. I know the people that come stay in them. Knew George and Timmy Warden and their pa. Knew that Eloise, too. Knew when Timmy used to come up and swim all the way across to see Ruthie Stam. Showing off, I guess. Then last year there was a fellow named Fitzmartin up here. Guess he rented this place from George. First time it was ever rented, and now it's been sold. But that's beside the point. You know there's all this do-it-yourself stuff these days? Takes the bread out of a man's mouth. Takes honest work away from him. People do things themselves, they botch it all up. Me, I take it like an insult. That Fitzmartin, he was digging around. Didn't know what he was doing. I figured whatever he was doing, it was something he could hire me to do. Then, by God, he trucks in cement, and he knocks together some forms, and I'd be damned if he doesn't cement the garage floor. Pretty fair job for an amateur. But it was taking bread out of my mouth, so I remember it. He put that floor in last May. If I was looking for any bodies, I'd look under that floor, because that Fitzmartin, he's a mean acting man. I came around to help, and he chases me clean off the place, walks me all the way up to the road with my arm twisted up behind me and calls me a trespasser. Nobody ever called me that before. Folks are friendly up here. That man, he didn't fit in at all. And I'm glad he wasn't the one who bought it. The folks who bought it, people from Reading, they seem nice. Got two little kids. I let them know when they want anything done, they get hold of Bert Finister. We stood in the glow of car lights. Captain Marion looked at Prine. Fitzmartin? Runs the lumber yard for George. Shall I go and get him? We'd better look first, Steve. That cement floor fooled me. I went over it carefully. It hadn't been dug up and patched. It never occurred to me that the whole floor had been— I saw a pickaxe in the shed, Captain Marion said. Maybe you'd better swing it yourself, Steve. Maybe you need the workout. Yes, sir, said a subdued Lieutenant Prine. They parked the cars so that the headlights made the inside of the garage as bright as a stage. Prine swung and grunted and sweated until Captain Marion decided the punishment was enough. Finister came back out of the darkness with another pick and a massive crowbar. The work began to go faster. A big slab was loosened. They pried it up, heaved it over out of the way, exposing black dirt. The man worked silently. For a long time it didn't appear that they would get anywhere. I was out in the darkness, having a cigarette, when I heard someone say sharply, Hold it! I started toward the garage and then thought of what they might find and stopped where I was. The one called Ben came out into the night. 
He bent forward from the waist and gagged dryly. He stood up and coughed. Find them? I asked. They found them. Brine says it's her. He remembers the color of her hair. I rode back in with Captain Marion. Prine had gone on ahead to pick up Fitzmartin. Captain Marion felt talkative. It isn't going to be too easy with this Fitzmartin. What can we prove that we'll stand up? Blackmail? We'd have to have the money and George's testimony. Concealing the evidence of a crime? He can say George told him to put a cement floor in the garage. He can say he didn't have any idea what was under it. No, it isn't going to be as easy as Steve thinks it is. Sometimes Steve worries me. He gets so damn set in his mind. He isn't flexible enough. But you think it was Fitzmartin? It has to be. He milked George clean dry. George didn't have much choice, I guess. Pay up or be exposed. If he was exposed, my guess is that he would have gotten life. A good defense attorney could have brought out some things about Eloise that wouldn't sound very pretty to a jury. George could have figured that when he ran out of money, Vince Martin might, probably would, take off without saying a word. That would leave him free to walk around broke. Better than not walking around at all. What I can't figure is how Fitzmartin got it into his head to look for those bodies. He wasn't in this town when George killed the pair of them. I understand he was in prison camp with Timmy. But how would Timmy have any idea about a thing like that? There's some angles to this we won't know unless that Fitzmartin wants to talk. I could sense the way his mind was turning. He glanced at me a couple of times. You gave us some help, Howard. I grant that. But I don't feel right about the way you fit in, either. What do you mean, Captain? Aren't you just a little too damn convenient? You hit town, and everything starts to pop open. Why is that? Coincidence, I guess. You knew Timmy, and you know Fitzmart. Maybe before you came here, you knew Fitzmartin was milking George. Maybe that's why you came here, Howard. I didn't know anything about it. I'm not through with you, son. Don't take yourself any notion to disappear. I want you where we can talk some more. You're just too damned convenient in this whole thing. At that moment, about a mile from the Hilston city limits, a call came in over the radio. Marion answered it. I could barely decipher Prine's Donald Duck voice over the small speaker. He's gone, Captain. Fitzmartin is gone. I've put out a description of him in his car. He was living in a shed at the rear of the lumber yard. All his personal stuff is gone. I felt the space heater. There was a little warmth left. He didn't leave too long ago. How about roadblocks? Damn it, Steve, I've told you before. Roadblocks aren't worth a damn around here. There are too many roads. There just aren't enough men and vehicles in this area to close all those roads. That stove could have been turned off three hours ago. You'd have to have your blocks set up right now this minute, on every road within a hundred miles at least. What do you suggest, sir? Prine said more humbly. 
Wait and see if somebody picks him up. Marion broke the connection. Okay, Howard. You seem to know Fitzmartin pretty well. Where does he come from? Originally from Texas, I think. What's his line of work? I think he worked in oil fields. Ever say anything about his relatives? He never talked very much. That's not much help, I guess. Where can we drop you off? My car's parked across the street from Perry's office. Want to tell you that I appreciate you making a pretty good guess about this whole thing, Howard. I can't help telling you I wonder just how much of it was guessing, and I wonder why you came here. I'd like it if you'd play the cards face up. I had thought him amiable, mild, ineffectual. Hour by hour I had revised my opinion. I had thought Prine was the dangerous one. Prine was the fool. Captain Marion was something else entirely. I'm not hiding anything, Captain. We've got George dead, and that grassman missing, and we've got these two bodies, and now Fitzmartin on the run. It has to get tied together a little better before I feel right about it. I'm sorry I can't help you. I'm sorry you won't help, son. Good night. They drove away. It was after ten, and I was famished. In twelve hours, I would be picking Antoinette up. With luck, in twenty-four hours, I would be gone, either with her or alone. I didn't know which it would be. Call it a form of monomania. I had thought about the money for too long. I had aimed toward it for too long. Tomorrow, I would have it. Once I had it, maybe I could begin to think clearly again. I found a place to eat. I was just finishing when Brubaker came in. He sat beside me at the counter and gloomily flipped the menu open. A hell of a long day, he said. It has been. And not over yet. At least they're giving me time to eat, and then back on the job until God knows when. Nobody will get any sleep tonight. I thought Captain Marion said he'd just wait and hope Fitzmartin gets picked up. That's right. I mean about the girl. I suddenly felt very cold. What girl? I thought you knew about that. The Stam girl. Perry brought her back to town. He left her off at her car. They found her car parked on North Delaware, and nobody's seen her since. Her old man is fit to be tied. Everybody's running around in circles. I couldn't finish the little bit of food that was left. I couldn't drink the rest of my coffee. It was as though my throat had closed. I wondered how soon they'd add two and two. Ruth had been subdued and thoughtful when she left the lake. She would remember that Fitzmartin had acted strangely. She was the sort of person to do her own investigating. She was the sort of person who would go and talk to Fitzmartin. She would have no way of knowing that he was a killer. She would underestimate his cleverness. It wouldn't take him long to learn that the car had been found, to learn that they were searching the area of the lake cabin. It was time to go. The string was running out. I could guess how it had happened with Grassman. Grassman, as a result of his quiet investigation, had made some sound guesses as to what had happened. He had paid a call on Fitzmartin. Maybe Grassman had wanted to cut himself in. Maybe he had made a search of the place where Fitzmartin lived while he was out. He could have found the large sum of money Fitz had extorted from George Warden. Fitz could have found him there and killed him, driven the body into town, and put it in my car. From the violence of the blow that had killed Grassman, it could be assumed that it was an unpremeditated killing. 
And the moment he killed Grassman, Fitz became more deeply involved. He waited, expecting me to be jailed for the Grassman murder. When I wasn't, he would know that I had successfully gotten rid of the body. No one had spotted it in my car. Thus, when it was found, it could be as readily traced back to him as to me. Assuming he could be questioned about Grassman, then George became the weak link. George, by talking, could disclose Fitz's motive for the Grassman murder, and so George had to die. Fitz had killed him boldly, taking his risk and getting away with it. Prine had been right about the towel. Just when he thinks everything has been taken care of, Ruth Stamm arrives. He can't leave without her immediately spreading the alarm. He needs a grace period, time to get away before someone else makes the same guess she has made. That left him with a choice. He could tie her up and leave her there, but that would be too clear an admission of guilt. He could take her with him. That would be awkward and risky. Or he could kill her. One more death wouldn't make any difference in the final penalty. You're doing a lot of sweating, Brubaker said. It isn't that hot in here. I managed a feeble smile. I said I would see him around. I paid and left. It was too easy to visualize her dead with raw new lumber stacked over her body, her dark red hair against the damp ground in the coolness of the night. What shocked me was the stunning sense of loss. It taught me that I had underestimated what she meant to me. I could not understand how she had come to mean so much in so short a time, more than Charlotte had ever meant. End of chapter 10